Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to Polcast. In this episode, we will tell you about one man's dream to reverse the Tower of Babel. How the 23rd century engineering and renaissance meet in Toronto. What Poles and Aboriginal people have in common. I will never forget my hiking trip in Scotland in the 1980s, all long before Poles invaded Britain. Do you know what was one of its highlights? The weather, music, the food? Oh, of course, all of them were great. But the best part was an incredible abundance of mushrooms in the forest. No British people picked them. So on the way to each youth hostel where I was supposed to stay, I picked tons of mushrooms and then cooked them upon arrival, which made most people there scared, but really interested. After they saw me eat them, they all joined, of course, and loved them. Mushroom picking is an important family pastime in Poland. Each family has its own mushroom forest and never shares its location with anyone. To be invited to the secret place is a sign of deep friendship and trust. When couples break up, their shared secret mushroom grounds are an important asset. Who gets it is a contentious issue. Mushroom picking is an art and requires extensive knowledge. Why? Because Mother Nature has played a trick on us, mushroom lovers. Each edible mushroom has its inedible, or in some cases poisonous counterpart, which is very similar in appearance. So, to be able to enjoy picking mushrooms, you really need to know how those two differ. Unfortunately, many people make mistakes every year, so mushroom picking is a little bit like Russian roulette. When in doubt, leave it. It's the best rule to follow. Nothing compares to the joy of seeing a pravdziwek, borovik, which is a bolet, the most cherished kind, hidden in the moss under a tree branch. And because they like growing in groups, looking for more and finding the second one, then the third one, when you're lucky, you grab them before the bugs get to them, because they also love mushrooms. Most forests in Poland are public, so anyone can just walk in and pick whatever there is to pick. Blackberries, blueberries. And mushrooms. Now you put the mushrooms which you found in a basket, and when you are back home, you clean them. Some are really hard to clean, as their tops are covered with slimy skin, which needs to be removed. But all that is part of the mushroom-picking fun. Poles love their mushrooms, which they eat fried, stewed in cream, or pickled. A great way to preserve them, to be used in other dishes throughout the year, is to dry them. They can be used for soups and sauces. In some families, wild mushroom soup is one of the traditional 12 Christmas Eve dishes. It was so good to discover that Ontario, where we live in Canada, has the same mushroom kinds as Poland. The only one that I have never found is kurka. In Polish it means little hen, which is chanterelle, 
a bright yellow mushroom growing in huge groups, often hidden under the moss, delicious when added to scrambled eggs and lots of fun to pick. Professor Janusz Kozinski, a Pole from Krakow, whose academic training and career took him all over the world. Krakow, Oxford, Harvard, MIT, McGill in Montreal, Saskatchewan, University of Utah, the University of Leeds, Imperial College, Queen Mary College, London, is the founding dean of Lassonde School of Engineering at York University in Toronto. He created the idea of Renaissance Engineering, a product of his own multidisciplinary soul. Globally trained academic, multidisciplinary researcher, creative thinker, arts connoisseur, entrepreneur, polyglot, he speaks five languages, and an approachable and caring people person. Lassonde School of Engineering is a truly unique fusion of, as they say, highest quality education, humanistic breadth, warmth, deep human sympathy, and intense need to look at every angle of an issue. And it educates entrepreneurs, leaders, and agents of social change, renaissance engineers, curious adventurers who will strike out in new directions. You're the founding dean of this new school that has a special vision. It's, it's, it's different from any other engineering departments, from what I understand. Can you just tell us how different it is and what, what the vision is? When we wanted to create a school, we decided to uh, consult with a variety of uh, stakeholders. We went to high school. We consulted with young people. We consulted with some of the uh, university colleagues with industry, with professional organizations, with the government. At the end, we came to conclusion that indeed the, uh, this, this large community of stakeholders, they are very much interested in creating uh, something different than the classical um, engineering. And we came up with the idea that we called uh, Renaissance engineering, the notion that the engineering is to serve uh, the future of, of the society much better. And what we did is we created a partnership between uh, the business school, between uh, law and engineering, and uh, that's the platform that we established for our students. Our students, they study um, engineering, business, and law at the same time. After completing engineering program, they can seamlessly move to get MBA or a, or a JD degree in law. In addition to it, we also um, thought about uh, answering a question, what are the key pillars, principles of, uh, of our school? We wanted to uh, make sure that our students uh, are going to think in large systems rather than little silos. Systems meaning they, want, they would think about society as a whole rather than elements of the society that whatever they design, and this is what engineers do, they do a lot of designing, they would do so with people in mind. Uh, the third element is to make sure that our engineering school is going to reflect much better how our society um, is built. And what we wanted to do is to have more female students. So we created a challenge. We call it 50-50 challenge that we would like to be the, uh, the first engineering school in Canada that will be able to achieve gender parity. Now, going back to the Renaissance idea, 
um, the, the, obviously, the, the, the name is not uh, coincidental. I'm sure it has something to do with how you want your students to think. So, uh, so what we did uh, in our school, uh, we put a lot of emphasis on uh, learning by doing. The idea, essentially, was to embrace uh, the, the saying uh, introduced by Benjamin Franklin that, uh, uh, tell me and I forget, show me and I remember, let me do it and I will understand. So um, we are letting our students do it, and they are learning by doing things rather than listening to lectures. Your school was started on 1-11-11, 1st of November 2011. What are the results? That's true. So how it happened really on, on uh, 1st of November 2011, we announced the donation from Pierre Lasson, uh, our key benefactor, um, of $25 million uh, to create a school. Since then, um, uh, the value of this $25 uh, million is now quarter of a billion. So we were very successful in, in the fundraising, in attracting more funding. Uh, the school formally started in 2013. So we've, um, we already graduated quite a few of, uh, of our students. Um, uh, uh, back in 2012-2013, we had around 280 engineering students, and now we have almost 2,100. Uh, so we are, we are still growing substantially, um, and uh, we intend to um, build another, another building. We tentatively received a, uh, an approval for that, and we want to create two new programs, chemical engineering and another one in biological engineering. Altogether, we have now 11 different programs for 2,100 students. La Sainte School now has a truly magnificent new building, a specimen of bold architectural design. It was inspired by a cloud. Uh, you, you see, what, what we really wanted to, uh, to do is to make sure that our uh, education is going to reflect how we function as human beings in life. And one of the uh, ingredients of what we do um, every day and how we interact with one another and how we interact with our surroundings is uh, ambiguity. The truth is we don't understand all of those interactions that we're having with our surroundings. And, and what we wanted to do is to make sure that our students and ourselves, we are not going to be afraid of uh, embracing ambiguity. So we were looking for elements that represent ambiguity, and we felt that a cloud is such, such an element because when you have a cloud and you look at it from different angles, you may find different interpretation. In our building, we have uh, no lecture halls. The majority of our spaces are, are dedicated to... Uh, um, the students, when they come, they do things. Our students and our faculty members and our staff, they really l love that building. It's very much um, an open concept. People interact with, with one another um, uh, in, in a way that, for example, in my own office, we live in an open concept. So we don't need to have any more um, uh, staff meetings to inform one another about what we're doing because people learn naturally from one another what is it that they do 
and uh, the, the, they are willing to offer help to, to one another in, in, in a very organic way. I wanted a little bit more, I guess. Somewhere where I was a little more engaged, a little more of a community environment, which is sort of what I see at Lausanne compared to the really cutthroat sort of thing you've got going on at the other traditional schools. Just really appreciate them, or even the open door policy that Dean Kaczynski's got. I've had a couple meetings with him, and it's great. I mean, what other school can you just walk into the Dean's office and have a cup of tea? Lausanne was the best fit for me. It just was. I kind of knew from the beginning that this is where I was going to go. And there is more. There is so much more. So for all the visuals, because we cannot show them in the podcast, links, more material, videos, and the full-length interview, because this was just short edited version, come and visit our website, mypodcast.com. Se ti am pluvas kaj ne pluvas manjo, kion ti faros? People have always dreamt of a pre-Tower of Babel world where humans could communicate in one common language. As thousands of languages developed, they grew apart. Hence, the importance of French as the language of aristocracy from Paris to St. Petersburg, or, once, the German language as the language of trade. Now, these languages have been surpassed by English, a global lingua franca. But there are hundreds of thousands of people all around the world who still live the dream of a Polish doctor, Ludwig Zamenhof, who created an artificial language called Esperanto. Doctoro Esperanto, Esperanto translates as one who hopes, physician Ludwig Lazarus Zamenhof was born in 1859 and died in 1917. He lived in the town of Białystok, where he saw how members of its four ethnic and linguistic groups, Polish, Yiddish, German and Russian, did not mix or talk to each other. Himself a polyglot, who spoke Polish, Russian, Yiddish and German, and could understand Latin, Hebrew and French, and had a basic knowledge of Greek, English and Italian, decided to create an easy-to-learn, universal language. He hoped it would change the world and promote understanding and peace. He started working on his language in 1873 while still in school. Esperanto is the most widely spoken constructed language in the world. Up to 2 million people worldwide, to varying degrees, speak Esperanto, including perhaps about 2,000 native speakers who learned Esperanto from birth. The World Esperanto Association has members in 120 countries. With about 223,000 articles, Esperanto Wikipedia is the 32nd largest Wikipedia as measured by the number of articles. There are thousands of books, songs, films in Esperanto, and all the classics have been translated into this language. In May 2015, the language learning platform Duolingo launched an Esperanto course for English speakers. As of the 3rd of December 2015, over 211,000 users had signed up. Although no country has adopted Esperanto officially, Esperanto was recommended by the French Academy of Sciences in 1921 and recognized by UNESCO in 1954. Esperanto is currently the language of instruction of the International Academy of Sciences, 
in San Marino. Zamenhof is a hero for the world's Esperanto community. In 1905, he received the Legion of Honor for creating Esperanto. In 1910, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and was made a commander of the Order of Isabella the Catholic by King Alfonso XIII of Spain. A minor planet, 1462 Zamenhof, was named in his honor in 1938. Also, hundreds of city streets, parks and bridges worldwide have been named after Zamenhof. Esperanto is a simple and regular language. It has 16 regular and exception-free rules of grammar and a totally regular phonetic spelling. Studies have shown that students who learn Esperanto as a second language before any other natural language will learn a third language much more easily and quickly than if they had learned another natural language instead. Well, it's much simpler than Polish. Definitely. Pluvi Sierra. A son of Polish immigrants, World War II refugees, who arrived in Canada to settle in Brantford, Ontario in 1950, Zig Mishak, Zygmunt Mishak, is a highly respected authority on Aboriginal peoples of Canada, author of several books, including the Native Program Teacher's Resource Guide, used in hundreds of Canadian educational institutions, including Aboriginal schools, an education partner with the School Boards of Ontario, a popular guest speaker admired for his knowledge of history. For his incredible passion, expertise and work for Canada, he has been awarded many prestigious awards the Governor-General's Caring Canadian Award, the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Medal, as well as honours bestowed on him by the Aboriginal communities, who regard him as a close friend and ally. How did you get interested and involved in the Aboriginal people's history and heritage? Uh, my father, uh, who was in the Polish army at the beginning of the war and got captured, of course ended up working uh, on railway lines and everything else too for the Nazis. Uh, my mother and I moved to Brantford in 1950, and right next door was the, a territory called the Grand River Six Nations Territory. Uh, many people know them as the Iroquois. They are uh, a grouping of nationalities, just like in Europe, you know, France and Poland and Germany were European. Uh, th th this is a grouping of First Nations that, that happened to settle here. I found out about the Indians, and that's what they were called back then, through TV and movies. And at that time, Westerns were very popular. Every kid in, uh, you know, in the neighborhood all over the country played cowboys and Indians as they called it. For example, the Lone Ranger with his friend Tonto, his native friend Tonto. And Tonto, as it turns out, uh, was born on the Grand River Six Nations. So I saw Tonto, whose actual name is Jay Silverheels, close up in 1957 at a parade. And then our museum here uh, in Brantford had many, many old artifacts, some going back as far as, many, as, far back as 10,000 years. And I went there often and with the library close by uh, I started to read as much about them as I could. What contacts did you have or have you had with the Aboriginal com community because they have accepted you, your books, everything you do? That was an evolution, of course. It was the museum that was the reading the little books, you know, that I found. And, of course, when I was 10, you know, seeing Jay Silverheels, this international uh, figure. He was a Hollywood star. Um, all of this, you know, just morphed into later years. You know, I, I uh, the, the older I got, the more... Uh, 
intense, uh, you know, my, my interest was, uh, the more friends I made or relationship I, I created with uh, people from the Grand River Six Nations and other First Nations territories. I'd say that that's 55 years at the very least and perhaps 60 uh, where it's developed. And now I would say that most of my friends are from the Grand River Six Nations territory, uh, like elders, academics, adults, children. The, but, but I've always stated that I write about but not for, and there's a difference. Um, I've always made every effort to make sure that my writing is based on good information, and I write it to help others to understand many things about the First Nations and Métis, the way I learned it and the way I understand it. And I'm still learning. Over 60 First Nations schools use our guide. 22 universities. There's two pages in the back of the guide of many people, both native and non-native, uh, that have that help put it together. Uh, the Six Nations Iroquois Program Teachers Resource Guide that Ray Sky and I wrote together. That's the one that's in mm-hmm. 695 schools. And my other books, my, my latest one, Wampum, the story of Shailen the Clam, where I explain a wampum belt. The uh, they, they actually sell my book uh, on the Six Nations territory, and they, they use it. Uh, in the schools, it's the newest one. There's a trust there that I've developed. You obviously have become a, a richer individual. It has enriched you, I'm sure. But in what way? Yeah. So I love their history. I love their culture. I love their determination to survive. Uh, their respect for Mother Earth. Their loyalties. Their sense of humor. Their willingness to share with me, for example. Then I think, um, what is the Polish connection to the native people? Well, there's actually many, um, and some, some when, I, when I go back uh, into the settlement of, by Europeans in particular of North America, the, the Poles were here as early as like the middle of the 17th century. My ancestry, like not directly, I don't think there was a Meshach there necessarily, um, settled in this country. During the French and Indian War, there, there were likely Poles around because certainly during the American Revolution there were. were, were. I think it's Kosciuszko, who I, I believe uh, was uh, was an officer uh, with the American General Washington and was building bridges and forts. Now take it into the War of 1812, which followed the uh, American Revolution. There was a company of Polish soldiers that actually fought alongside the British against the Americans at Fort Erie in 1814. Uh, World War One. Jay Silverheels' father, the Tonto, uh, who was known for Tonto, he actually trained Polish men in particular that came in from the United States and in Canada, and he went over with them to fight against the Germans in World War One. Jay Silverheels' brother, one of his brothers, married a Polish woman from Buffalo. When I look at the Polish history, there seems to be a common denominator between Poland's struggle to maintain its sovereignty, its well-being, and its culture. Poland has been faithfully an ally. When I look at World War II, for example, and it was abandoned uh, and, and taken by Russia. Like the First Nations, you know, they want to maintain their sovereignty. They want to sustain their culture. And they were mistreated after being loyal allies as Poland had been. And I find that that uh, common thing there, too, because when I have conversations with new people I meet from the First Nations, and sometimes they say, well, what do you know about our, our trials and tribulations? I says, more than you think. And then I go back 
uh, to Poland not being a country for about 150 years and how we've been divided? I said, yes. I said, my ancestors go back thousands of years in Europe. I said, I have a sense. I know what it's like to have a country taken over and people killed and and then our people were spread all over the world. Uh, I have native people I've never met before in my life when I'm at book signings and then reach out their hand and say thank you. It draws tears to my eyes because, you know, to be able to do something like that. And the little kids, the little native kids, you know, I go down there and sometimes I speak at the schools and they're sitting there and I'm telling them about, you know, what I know about their history and culture and these little brown eyes looking at me and smiling, you know. You yourself have an immigrant story and a complicated relationship with your heritage. As a three-year-old, uh, I couldn't speak English. I dressed differently. DP meant displaced person or people, not deported person or dumb Polak, uh, which I was called when I was small. And even though I tried to fit in, my name gave me away, Zygmunt. I began to hate that name, and the best I could do was Zig, but that didn't sound much like Joe, Alan, Sam, Bob, Bill. This lasted into my early 30s, my feeling of embarrassment. Then I moved back to Brantford in 1979, and I started to learn more about my heritage, my Polishness. I started to understand how our vets and survivors sacrificed but still remained hopeful and loyal to Poland, even from their wonderful new home, Canada. And now I'm very proud and grateful Canadian, but I have a much deeper sense of my roots, my lineage, my ancestral home, Poland. Bridging is a term I use. Actually, it's been used here, you know, for me in Bradford, uh, between Polishness, the the Canadianness, the the communities here, and the Six Nations, who are our neighbors and friends. At the same time, for me personally, it's a bridging between my ethnicity, my heritage, my Polishness, uh, and 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 Canadians. Plans for the future? I, I I'll continue to do what I'm doing for the rest of my life. I found a purpose. In the last episode we played this sound wondering if you recognize it. Scots have many things in common. They love their traditional drink, not the same kind though. They share part of the story of Wojtek the Bear, as you know by now, and both use bagpipes. An instrument that is traditionally used to perform folk music in the southern part of Poland is a bagpipe. In Polish, the names for the instruments are dudy or koza. There are different types of bagpipes, depending on the area of Poland. In the Scottish version of the instrument, the air is pushed into the bag when the player blows into a reed sticking out of the bag. Whereas in Polish, dudy, the air is pushed into the bag from the bellows, which are squeezed with the player's elbow. And of course, the most important difference between Poles and Scots is that Scots played their bagpipes wearing kilts. It's time for our next sound from Poland. Here it is. Listen, think, guess. Where do you need to be in Poland in order to hear this sound? 
And what is it? been listening to the fifth episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Banikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. In our next episode, we will tell you why the Polish language is perfect for talking to your lover. How being a genius pianist helped in inventing car parts. Why two American girls think it's cool to be bilingual? And we leave you with an example of Polish jazz. Thank you for listening. Thank you.